Good morning. I just wanted to make sure I didn't have enough time to finish my lecture. So I threw in that extra song. I've got a, a, a long one this morning. <laughs> and uh, a good lecture has, you know, an introduction, three points, and a conclusion. This morning I've got a wandering in, 12 points, and an exit. <laughs> but... Uh, We'll see, we'll see how far we'll go. Let's start, of course, with Hafiz and then remembering the important things. And then uh, just spend some time with Mother and listening to some different scriptures this morning. It happens all the time in heaven. And someday, it will begin to happen again on earth. That men and women who are married and men and men that are lovers, and women and women who give each other light, often will get down on their knees, and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand, with tears in their eyes, will sincerely speak, saying, My dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? This morning I chose this lecture in a roundabout way, actually. <laughs> it's always bold when you start saying something like that as a Vedantist, and you kind of realize that really I didn't choose it at all. It happened to be what I was reading and what came up in the books and uh, coincided with the title that I gave Maharaj last month. And so we're going to talk about relationships, but from a, from a little bit of a different angle. We're going to dig into uh, the Benedictine rule of monasticism. Anybody heard of that? <laughs> it's very old. Uh, the Benedictine order in uh, the Catholic Church obviously is based on it. Saint Benedict was a, a Christian mystic and saint from the 400s. So he was right in that period where they were kind of grabbing up the, the things that eventually became the Bible. Uh, but he lived in that time where Vedanta, where, well, where Christianity probably resembled Vedanta quite a bit. Uh, there were wandering teachers going around. There wasn't a central book for reference. People were handing around scraps of letters from the apostles that had been left behind. Or uh, a lot of the New Testament is letters that the apostles were writing back and forth uh, to the different churches, giving instructions. And in that atmosphere, Saint Benedict uh, realized God and started an order and wrote a short treatise uh, which uh, outlines how to build a successful community, how to build a successful order of monks. And, uh, I mean, 400 AD, that was a long time ago. And for that order to still be going uh, strong and uh, for that book to still exist and still be in print uh, grabbed my attention and thought it might be worth looking at. And in this book, uh, St. Benedict says, Humility is the glue of our relationships. Humility is the foundation of community and family and friendship and love. Humility comes from understanding my place in the universe. So we're going to go through these 12 degrees of humility that uh, St. Benedict writes down. And he writes them as a progression. So you start with the first one, and once you kind of get that going, you move on to the second one. And by the time you get to number 12, he says that you will actually love God <laughs> at that point. You will arrive at your bhava, your love of God. So I want to jump into that. But first, I want to make sure to put our minds in the right place and to remember the most important things in this world, in this life. We know as we come to the scriptures and as we spend time in the shrine and as we work on our spiritual lives and we struggle uh, with all the things that we're fighting against internally and externally, that our sincerity and our earnestness makes all the difference. And Takor says that that's the most important thing for us. So this morning, I always go over these things because I always feel like if you don't remember any of the lecture, at least we'll walk away and remember the, say, the, the most important things. <laughs> Uh, I got that actually from, from a story, a historical story of the Apostle John. Uh, 
uh, when he was, he's the only a, a direct disciple of Jesus that wasn't martyred. And uh, he was exiled, though, to an island, the island of Patmos. And uh, there was a small congregation out on that island. And uh, when he was a very old man, they, a couple of devotees, one on each side, would take him by his arms and walk him up to the lectern to, to say something. They would ask him every week to say something uh, to the congregation. And he would always get up and just say one sentence because he was bold and because that's all that needed to be said. He would look at the devotees with tears in his eyes and he would say, my brothers and my sisters love one another. And then he would sit down again. And so he just said that over and over and over and over again uh, because it was the most important thing. That is our second point, that when Jesus was asked what the most important teaching was, he said to love God, to love God with all of your heart and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and that the second commandment was very much like it and that was to love each other as you love yourself and uh, Vedanta unlocks that key showing us that both of those come from the same place that they're the same act to love yourself to love others and to love God in the end is the same thing and then the third uh, point was again from Takor as I mentioned, you know, you're sitting there throwing the pairs of opposites away, trying to realize that this world is just bouncing back and forth between two sides, good and bad, happy and sad, rich and poor, comfortable, uncomfortable, tired, awake, <laughs> whatever. Back and forth, and he was going to throw truth and untruth into the river, and he says that Mother wouldn't allow him. You know, he said, he said, Mother, here's your truth, and then she stopped him right there. And he said he came to understand that that truth was... Uh, fundamental, that that inner integrity, the alignment of your thoughts, your deeds, and your words uh, into a cohesive, integrated whole was fundamental to spiritual life. So with those three things, I guess, as our, uh, <laughs> our clothing, I guess, our, our, our books for, for exploring, uh, our compass, maybe that's the word, our compass will go forward and jump in. Now, had I started on time, I would have five minutes per point, which I wasn't going to do anyway. The first degree of humility, then. Now, I, I warn you, uh, if uh, these are very Christian. <laughs> I, deba I debated whether I was going to kind of put them into modern language or not, but I thought, nah, I'll just leave them in their, in their rough and tough originals and let us deal with them because they say a lot of the things that Vivekananda didn't like and uh, so we're going to talk our way around those and uh, kind of keep the meaning but paint it in a different way paint it in a different understanding so that we don't walk away feeling less than so the first degree of humility then is that a man always has the fear of God before his eyes shunning all forgetfulness and that he be ever mindful of all that God has commanded him in a lecture called The Preparation, in volume four, Swamiji says that food brings a pure mind, and in a pure mind is the constant memory of God. So this is the first step to our humility, is to bear in mind the constant thought of God, the constant thought of love. And love is that Satguru, the guru of gurus, the teacher of teachers, it is that element that is hidden in all things in this, in this world, in this life. It is the thing that is constantly teaching us. It is the cause of evolution. I heard one time a very interesting thing from, uh, from a, a senior Swami. He said, you know, uh, you are not evolving. You are not growing. Your mind is evolving. And your mind is growing because of its contact with you. You are that perfect love. You are that satchit ananda, that self. And the mind that you are so deeply attached to, that you look through and process this whole world by, it is changing and growing and going through its gyrations and its turmoils because of you, because of your perfection because of that constant reminder of perfect love that lies within, that constant hunger 
for that ref- that return to the to the depth of pure love that that lies within us all the time just constantly sending out a little ping i'm over here i'm over here a little ping like that one <laughs> but it's over there so <laughs> so to take that and to develop that become aware of your nature that's what it is to think of god all the time to become aware of the fact that you are this this eternal ever burning perfect love to always have your mind on that so that when you're in any situation that thought is coloring it when you're sitting there in the office when you're in the car when you're being cut off i the other day i had a very disturbing experience i was driving down georgia and there was a car turning left in front of me and i was just going to casually cruise over to the right lane because it was open and go around him with no trouble but the guy behind me decided he was going to do the thing too and he was going to do it faster and get next to me so that i couldn't pull over <laughs> i uh, i didn't pass the test <laughs> i <laughs> yeah i i didn't pass the test and uh, i spent a lot of time thinking about that actually uh, how disappointed i was in that that i was so easily overcome and got so annoyed at somebody doing something that i i know i've done before too <laughs> and that's the that we're going to run through this whole thing with humility that's a very important point in that is coming to that understanding that like benedict says there that humility really is just understanding your real place in the universe it's the product of being honest the product of being truthful with ourselves the product of growth so this pure mind is the constant memory of god and it says food brings the pure mind Now uh you know Swami Vivekananda really opened my eyes when he talked about food he said food is not just what you put in your mouth food is anything that you give to your senses so all of the things that you take in to your body and mind that is the food of your life that food produces you produces your the state of your mind so if you are walking around and looking and being attracted to things that are contrary to your nature things that are selfish in their nature things that are that are temporarily pleasant in their nature things that are contrary to you and to your needs your mind is going to going to become very agitated it's going to become very needy it's going to become very hungry and it's always going to be looking for those things it's never going to stop and the scriptures are very clear in telling us that the more you try and feed it the hungrier that beast gets and uh, if you don't believe it pick something rather uh, trivial and experiment with it you'll find it to be true uh, i found it to be true almost to the point of death in my life actually that indeed those things that i with wanton abandonment jumped into in an early part of my life uh, drove me to a to a a terrible state of 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 sarcasm i guess just a real sarcastic pessimistic view of things and just a constant need for more uh you know anything all the objects in my life became modes of getting something they weren't things in and of themselves you know so that's our first one watch what you're eating watch what you're putting into your mind and body that you can nurture this constant thought of love this constant thought of god that it will color your life and color what you are the second degree of humility is when a man loveth not his own will nor is pleased to fulfill his own desires but by his deeds carrieth out the word of god which says i came not to do my own will but to do the will of him that sent me so it's this this notion of of not just getting what you want you know and all of this is going to be put in the in terms of a relationship he's talking about a monastic community and what it takes this is what it takes with your relationship with your daughter and with your son and with your wife and with your family these are the qualities of you that are going to build the relationships that you've got all around you so always color them in that way when you approach your family when you approach your partner when you approach your children are you open to a sense of a community of a communal communal will <laughs> are you open to other people's ideas other people's needs uh, other people's likes dislikes wants desires and what not are you conscious of them or are you one who's constantly pushing your own agenda 
always the one trying to get your friends to do what you want to do, to eat at the restaurant you want to eat at. And that horrible feeling when you've got your, when you've got your whole heart set on Mexican food and all your friends decide on Chinese. And you just want to be, you just want to be a little tyrant the rest of the night. You know, you're just like, <laughs> just contrary at all points. Is that, does that describe you? Or are you someone who, who gets together with your friends like, what do you guys want? Ah, oh, that's a great idea, let's do it. And you throw yourself into their desires and into their wants and their needs. Let go of yourself. So we've got those two. We've got the constant thought of love abiding in our heart, knowing that that's our nature. And we're feeding that nature by the things in our life, the things that we're doing, the things that we're reading, the people that we're you know, hanging out with. And that we're trying to do, to, 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 to have this love grow and, and to bear some fruit by thinking about others and, and getting rid of our own thoughts and trying to think, you know, uh, by watching Takor in his life or watching Holy Mother or watching Jesus or watching Buddha to see what it looks like to live for love, to live for that nature. The misfortune that befalls a man on account of his egotism, this is Takor talking, if you only think of the condition of a calf, the calf says, Hama, Hama. Now, I guess this is a Bengali calf. <laughs> I never seen a calf say Hama, Hama. But uh, this calf, this calf is saying Hama, Hama. That is, I, I. And just look at its misfortune. At times it is yoked to a plow and made to work in the field from sunup to sundown, rain or shine. Again, it may be slaughtered by the butcher. In that case, the flesh is eaten and the skin is tanned into hide. And from the hide, shoes are made. And people put on these shoes and they walk on rough ground. And still, it is not the end of its misfortune. Drums are made from its skin and mercilessly beaten with sticks. At last, its entrails are made into strings for the bow used in carding cotton. When used by the carter, the string gives the sound, Tuhu, Tuhu, Thou, Thou, that is, it is thou, O Lord, it is thou. It no longer says, Hama, Hama, I, I. Only then does the calf's trouble come to an end, and it is liberated. It does not return to the world of action. All right, well, we could go for a whole day on that little piece right there. Just this, you, you have a choice. Tucker's really giving you a choice right there, you know, and, and he's warning you at the same time. If your life is self-centered... If you are all about your desires and your wants and your needs and your goals and your dreams, he says you are going to be beat to the dust <laughs> by the time it's over. That, that this world is going to battle you at every turn. You're going to be in a bad mood most of the time. <laughs> You're going to be angry with people who are contrary to your ideas and what you want and what you need. And the people that are getting in your way, the things that are getting in your way, it's just going to be a constant struggle. And he's saying, you can go through that. Many of us choose to. He says, in the end, you'll be all right. You'll get there that way, too. You know, being selfish is a way to God. <laughs> you know, just like off a cliff is the fastest way to the bottom. But, uh, you know, you might not be in the same shape when you get there. So uh, keep this in mind. The second thing that we want is a heart and a mind that is thinking of others, thinking about the needs of the people around us. And uh, something I've been saying a lot lately, because mostly I'm trying to get myself to do it, is, uh, is to start your day that way. You know, to get up in the morning and have the first thought be God, of course. Say good morning to Takor or... Uh, throw something at them, depending on how you're feeling, you know, <laughs> but have your first thought of God. And then uh, the second thought be, what can I do today for somebody? Is there anybody I know that is sick? Anybody that I know that's might be lonely or might be stuck at home or, you know, might need a visit of some kind to, to start thinking that way, to start your day that way. The third degree of humility is that for the love of God, a man subjects himself to a superior in all obedience, imitating the Lord, of whom the apostle says, he became obedient unto death. I'm going to go to the gospel again to kind of back this one up. This is Takwa. This is M actually talking with the doctor who was taking care of Takwa. And the doctor's laughing, and he says, How well I told him yesterday that in order to be able to say, Tuhu, Tuhu, thou, thou, from the story we read earlier, 
One must fall into the hands of an expert carter. M says, it's true, sir. One cannot get rid of egotism without the help of a capable teacher. How well he spoke last night of bhakti. Bhakti, like a woman, can go into the inner court. You can go all the way to God with love for him. So getting rid of this egotism. So the third degree, to tie it in there again, is that this love for God, a man subjects himself to a superior in all obedience, imitating the Lord. This is the idea of the guru, the teacher. And oddly enough, it's the one that I hear most people push against. We don't like the idea of a guru. I want to do it myself. It's the age of independence. You can't do it yourself initially. And you're like, but, but the, the, the guru's inside. The kingdom of heaven is within. You know, <laughs> I can do it myself. The mind is my teacher. The pure mind is your teacher. The pure mind is your teacher. The noisy mind is your undoing. And following its desires is not going to make you free. Following its teachings is not going to necessarily take you higher. If you have the thought of God behind it, you have a better chance of it because you'll be able to see some of the errors and whatnot. But if the thought is behind, of God is behind it, your mind is purifying. So you have to get that mind pure. You have to get that ego out of your way. This sense of I, this sense of this body-mind, of that being who you are, that's the thing that, that, that is not letting you sit in ecstasy this morning. That's the reason that, that, that we're all kind of just sitting here sort of very neutral today. There's not much happiness. There's not much sadness. We're all just kind of like, hmm, yeah, here we are. I hope it's a good one today. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> you know, this notion that, that, uh, this, that, that this I that we serve, this ego that we worship, this ego which is the idol of idolatry uh, that we bow down to and take care of, it is the reason that our lives are not full of bliss. It's the reason that we don't know what samadhi is. You know, it's the reason that we don't know God. It's the reason we're not feeling him right now, that we're not aware of the presence, that we're not reminded of the presence right now. It's that whole thing. And to get out of sight of that sense of I, you have to subject yourself to a teacher who can tell you the truth sometimes that you're not going to want to tell yourself, to take you places that you're not going to want to take you yourself because it's not pleasant or it's not what you want to do or it's not the book you want to read you know or it's not the type of meditation you think you like or what not like that you have to find a teacher you have to find something outside of yourself that you will subject your will to that you will subject your ego to so that you can feel what it is not to have the I dictating what you eat and where you go and what you do. It's why you're called a slave in the scriptures. We don't feel that way, oddly enough. I heard a great thing from a preacher when I was a boy. He said, you're not free to say yes to something until you're free to say no to it. And I loved that idea because I understood immediately what Jesus meant by being a slave and what Takor means by being a slave to your ego. Your ego gets up in the morning, it's in a bad mood, so you're in a bad mood. It wants pizza, you got to go find pizza. It wants to watch that movie, you got to go find that movie. It wants to hang out with those people, you got to call them and make the arrangements. It wants the, the clothes that are dirty, you got to wash them and get them ready. And we do that all happily thinking, oh, we're serving ourselves, you know, I'm free. <laughs> you're, not, you're not free until you can say no, you know. You're not, you're not free to have sex until you're free not to. And are you free not to? Can you say no to your body and to your mind and have it listen to you? Or will, it, will you be able to say no and then it just it sits there like a spoiled child until it wears you down and then at the end you're like, ah, whatever, you know? And you go get a drink or you go do whatever you're going to do. It's like that slavery. And it's because of that slavery that, that, that you don't see God. It's because of that slavery that you don't find happiness. So go and find your happiness. Find a teacher, find something greater than yourself to break out of that notion of self so that you can listen to something else in your life <laughs> besides that nagging sense of I that's never fulfilled, never content, and has never done enough. So find a better teacher <laughs> than the ego. The fourth degree of humility is that if hard and distasteful things are commanded, nay, even injuries are inflicted, he accepts them with patience, with an even temper, 
and does not grow weary or give up. Vivekananda, in his thoughts on the Gita, says, The nature of a man of sattva-guna is that he is equally calm in all situations in life, whether they are prosperity or adversity. And we all know the, the, from, from many of the other classes that this the mind of the man of steady wisdom, the same in all things. You know, that, that you, you can do, you can do anything and find contentment in it by the way that you do it. That you accept them with patience and with an even temper. You, know? you can see this in a mother, for sure. I can see many times in my life where my bad mood or my sickness or my soccer game or my hunger took, took priority over my mother's desire to, you know, do whatever she wanted to do. <laughs> Being a good son, I can't even remember what that probably was. But, <laughs> but that notion, you know, that mothers are a great example of this, you know, being able to overlook their own needs. Some fathers, too, you know, when they come home from work at night, you know, the last thing that they want probably is often what they get. And yet, there they are for the family, you know, making themselves available, being there to listen. My father uh, used to come into my room every single night. It used to annoy me to death because I was a cantankerous teenager. And he would always sit down on the end of my bed and he would just say, so how did your day go today? And you know, my whole life, I never told him. I was like, that was fine. You learn anything at school today? No. <laughs> you like what you're learning? No, I don't care. You know, because I was independent. I didn't want him sitting there. But he came every night and subjected himself to that terror <laughs> of asking me every night the same question. And every night I was mean and was like, just go away. <laughs> I want to go to bed. You know, but he came, subjected himself every night. That's the kind of love we're looking for. That, that is the fourth degree of humility that you will take whatever you need to do and that you'll do it with patience and you'll do it with joy. And the most important part, I even highlighted in red here, is to not grow weary, to not give up. That's the fourth call of humility. Don't get tired and don't give up. You know, many of us were kind of in the second half of our life. Some of us are in the fourth quarter. Some of us are in the eighth, eighth, you know. <laughs> But nonetheless, we've been doing the spiritual life for a long time. You know, we've, we've been forcing ourselves to get up and do our meditation. And we've been, you know, pushing ourselves to memorize scripture and to do our chanting. And we've been trying to get better and to get more self-control. And, uh, you know, if we're lucky, you, you, you feel some growth. You feel some change. Uh, you know, if, if you're like what I suspect many people are, you don't. You don't really see it. And you're just like... Uh, <laughs> Good God, how long, oh Lord, how long? Atakor was like that. Every single night he would cry before God. Another day has come and you haven't shown yourself to me. Will my whole life pass in vain, he asks. Will my whole life be without meaning? So in this degree of humility, we go before the Lord continuously, making our every effort, and we don't base it on what he's giving us. We don't base it on the fact that he's paying us, giving us little trinkets of bliss or, you know, whatever it is that we, that we might be looking for in our spiritual life. He may be withholding them for that exact reason. Because you can't have pure love, you can't see pure love if you're selling it or buying it for something. It's not real. If there's a price involved, an exchange involved. It's not real because it will change and disappear when that exchange stops. So our spiritual life is like that. Our efforts toward God may not seem like they're bringing a reward, and it might be because we're looking for that reward. That meditation might not be a good one because you're looking for a good one. Just simply surrender. It is good by default. It will be blissful by default. If you can for a moment shut that mind up, if you can for a moment shut that ego down, you will find the mind of bliss that Takur is talking about, this ocean of light, these waves of bliss that threaten to dismantle the sense of I that he saw in the shrine. That's what's waiting for those of us who can be humble, who can set aside our minds, set aside our will, 
set aside our needs and our wants, our goals and our dreams, and just be what we are for a moment. Just be what we are. So to accept the things in your life with patience and an even temper and to not grow weary and give up. The fifth degree of humility is one when one hideth from his abbot none of the evil thoughts which rise in his heart or the evils committed by him in secret, but humbly confesses them. This is a very Christian concept, but I don't think it only, it's only Christian. Of course, I chose a Bible verse to highlight it, just to make my point. He <laughs> says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you spiritual teachers, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You know, this whole idea of, of humility being the need to be what you are out loud, to not pretend what you are. You know, sometimes in families, we squelch what's going on because we don't want others to know about it. You know, when I gave that lecture on, on, uh, on um, depression, you know, it was kind of risky for me, I felt like, because here I'm a Swami, I'm supposed to be this, and I'm supposed to be that, and I'm supposed to represent this. And then to get up and, 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 and admit, you know, I'm, I go through depression, I get really down. That was really hard for me. You know, after that lecture, I had no less than five people come and say, oh, my God, I was so relieved to hear you say that. Because they had it, and they didn't talk about it. They said that they couldn't share it with their, with their friends and family because they said those things just aren't talked about. We just, we just don't go there. And I'm afraid that in a lot of our families here this morning that that's kind of a rule, that you don't talk about things that, that aren't whitewashed on the outside that aren't pretty you know that you're not honest about the things going on in your family and that there's so much pressure on your kids that they can't come to you and say what they're really thinking what they're really feeling because they don't want to bring dishonor to the family or they don't want to disappoint you or they don't want you to think less of them because you've been driving them so hard in a given direction all their life you know that they end up as a doctor when they didn't want to be a doctor <laughs> They ended up as a lawyer when they didn't want to be a lawyer because you never asked them what they wanted, what they dreamed of, what they were. That you were emphasizing, remember point two, you were emphasizing your will for them, your goal for them, what you wanted them to be. You weren't being humble even as a parent in that sense. A humble parent listens to his kids, finds out what his strengths are, what his weaknesses are, and then fans the strengths and encourages the weaknesses so that that child can be what they are in the fullness of the sense. That's an important point of humility. That's the reason that it's important to let go of your own notions so that, so that these kinds of things don't happen, so that somebody's depressed who's depressed doesn't, on top of that, get isolated. And then somebody who's depressed and isolated doesn't then feel guilty and shamed because they're, they're isolated, you know? And they start locking themselves in their room and they start not being able to get out of bed and it just kind of spirals and spirals and spirals from there. And the real issues never get dealt with because nobody's going to talk about it. We hide, you know, the kid that hangs out in the bedroom, we just don't tell, don't tell anybody about him, you know? Don't let that happen. Relationships are about honesty. It's about you being frank with your kids. Yeah, I struggle with that too. Yeah, you know, I'm depressed. Yeah, you know, I'm not happy all the time. Yeah, I had to do this because of my parents. And no, it hasn't been the greatest, but I've really stuck by it. I've made the best of it. Whatever it is, that honestly, that honesty of being who you are out loud, not necessarily so that you can be that way and stay that way and be brash about it. That's not the point. The point is that you're being human so that other people can be human. And then we can know that somebody's got our weaknesses covered. 
Not that somebody's going to talk about them in the kitchen behind our back, but that somebody's got us covered. That somebody's seeing our weakness and is going to help us with it because they know about it. That's why we confess freely what we are with each other. That's why we stop it with pretenses. That's why we're not afraid to be what we are. So that we can love each other. So that we can see opportunities to help each other. So that we don't have to go mining into somebody else's business to try and find out how we can help them. <laughs> we can know because they ask for it. Or they're struggling clearly. They're not hiding their weakness and their faults. The sixth degree of humility is when a monk is content with the meanest and worst of everything. <laughs> this goes into that kind of Christian mentality again, or at least my perspective of a Christian mentality, not to offend anybody. It's probably too late. And in all that <laughs> is enjoined him, holdeth, holdeth himself as bad and worthless, a workman saying with the prophet, I am but nothing, I, brought to, I am brought to nothing and I knew it not. I am become as a beast before you, and I am always with you. So that, that this is just the idea to kind of interpret it into more of a human place, that we accept what comes to us. We're not haughty. We don't demand a certain quality of things. You know, I remember at a family Christmas one time, one of the kids was, had asked for a backpack for Christmas. And so my mom, being the sweetest woman in the world, bought a backpack for this young man. <laughs> and it was just one of these normal school backpacks. But what he had wanted was the framed backpack for real hiking. You know, but he hadn't said that. My mother didn't assume that. So she bought that for him and she bought a really nice one, a very nice backpack. And literally that Christmas morning, he picked it up and he was like, what is this? This is stupid. I can't do anything with this. It's so small, it won't hold anything. And he literally threw it aside and went off and pouted. <laughs> I'd like to say it was me just for the shame of it, but this, <laughs> it wasn't. But, the, uh, but that whole notion, it still made an impact on me. You know, it's like, are we like that? Somebody goes out to make you a dinner and they come out with a steaming pile of boiled bitter gourd. <laughs> How do you feel about that? You know, well, I can't believe you. You know I hate that stuff. Why did you bring that to me? You don't care about me at all. Actually, that's the first sign. That's a good point. That's the first sign of, uh, of, of ego, of violating humility, is when you accuse somebody else of not thinking about you at all. Because in accusing somebody of that, you're certainly not thinking about them at all, <laughs> right? Those things that you see in others, Takor tells us this, Mother tells us this, Jesus tells us, Buddha, everybody. The whole chorus of heaven is saying this to us. The faults that you find in everybody else are your own. Because if they didn't exist in you, you wouldn't be able to recognize them in somebody else. And Takor gives that famous example, the baby sees no thief. You know, a baby comes into the, a thief comes into the baby's room and, I don't know, steals diapers? Who knows? <laughs> steals his baby powder. The baby's not standing there in the crib like, yo! <laughs> Dude, that's my powder, man. Put it down. It's not like that. He's just there being happy, just being a baby, just going on, trusting that everything's going to be taken care of for himself. You know, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. We're not walking around making sure nobody's taking our stuff, you know, making sure nobody's violating our space, stepping into our time, you know, encringing on my free time. We don't live like that. We don't walk around as spiritual seekers worried about what we need and what we want and, and how the world is giving that to us. That's not how we are. We're walking around, looking around. How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? What can I do? And not necessarily going around saying, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? It's walking in and looking around and being aware and saying, oh, look, that's being done. Part two of that will be this. And you jump on it, not asking, not making a big deal of it, you know, not coming into the kitchen. Everybody stop. I'm here. How can I help? What can I do for you? <laughs> you know, that is a way. It's not the way, though. 
So let's not go like that. Humbling ourselves, being content with the meanest and the worst of everything. Which we just take what comes and we're happy with it. We're glad that somebody thought about us. You know, one of the greatest uh, examples of this is, uh, you know, when when you're a kid and you go to buy your dad a birthday present with your mother. And like, so you're trying to pick something out and mom gives you, you know, $20. Okay, go buy dad a birthday present. And it wasn't wasted on me. Even even when I was 12 at the PX one Saturday with my mother, she handed me that $20 bill and I was like, she doesn't have a job. Where did she get that 20 from? She got that 20 from the birthday boy that I'm buying a gift for. Why doesn't he just come and take that 20 and get what he wants? <laughs> like that, you know? So, but dad... When I came in, in, with, in with his little Snoopy statue that said, Think Snow, <laughs> because I thought it was neat, and I gave it to him, he was happy, he was thrilled by it. And to this day, that silly thing is sitting there on his desk, you know, as a constant reminder that I spent his $20 for his birthday gift, <laughs> like that, you know. But in a way, our whole life is like that, isn't it? Because what do you have now that you, that you have that isn't related to the fact that your parents took care of you? that they raised you up, that they taught you and trained you and gave their life to you. Everything you've got now, everything that you could do for them belongs to them already in one sense. You know? And with your own kids like that. But to find that happiness anyway, you gave them an opportunity and they took it and thought about you. And you're proud of the fact that they have a loving and winning heart like that. So that's our notion to be content with the meanest and the worst of everything. Nevedita was asked, I think it was Nevedita, I was looking all over for this. Google itself could not deliver it to me, the reference. When uh, Swami Vivekananda, I think it's with Nevedita, it's with one of those great women, either the Hale Sisters, or I think it was Nevedita, where he asks, what is the crux of human, of, of Western civilization's manners or uh, their, their ethics? And she, uh, being quite genius actually, picked up a knife, and handed it to him handle first. And she said that, that is the crux of Western manners, to give the best end to the other and to, and to, take, and to keep the dangerous part or the hurtful part toward yourself or for yourself. So it's having that kind of mentality. You know, you sit there and you, you're going to share that piece of birthday cake. It's the last piece of birthday cake. You're really hungry. So you cut it in half and you accidentally move it over and cut it slightly not in half. And you give it in the small little piece you give to your brother. And the big piece you kind of cover it and turn sideways real quick and <laughs> finish yours. You know, it's purposely, it's purposely cutting the smaller half for yourself. And giving the bigger half. Or, or you know, at, at, at the dinner table, you've got that last slice. Yes, we're going to bring pizza up again every lecture. That last slice of pizza, you know. And you're saying, anybody want this piece of pizza? And you're fairly certain nobody does. But somebody says, oh, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> right? Then you'll know how humble you are. Immediately. Watch the first thought in your head. <laughs> you'll know. Are you thrilled to give that person the last piece of pizza? You know, or have you come up with new nicknames for them? That's the question. <laughs> Do you stop talking to them? The seventh degree of humility is when not only with his tongue, he declares, but also in his inmost soul believes. <laughs> oh, Vivekananda's going to hate this one. That he is the lowest and vilest of men, humbling himself and saying with the prophet, but I am a worm and no man, the reproach of men and the outcast of the people. Now, I look at that, and of course, from Vivekananda, you get the idea that that's not a Vedantic principle. But it is a Vedantic principle. Because here's the master saying, They took me to Keshab's house to see a performance of the Namai Sanyas. I heard that day someone speaking of Keshab and Pretap as Chaitanya and Nityananda. So he heard somebody praising these other teachers as being incarnations, basically. And Prasanna asked me, who are you then? And Keshab looked at me to see what I was going to say. And I said to him, I am the servant of your servant, the dust of the dust of your feet. Keshab said with a smile, you can't catch him. <laughs> but see, that's the attitude that Thakur had about himself. So it is a Vedantic principle 
to not not be self-hating, but to know that you as the lower self have nothing redeeming about you. But you as the real self, the self that is behind it, which is your real self, that self is all the beauty that you have to offer and all the beauty that you can aspire to. But if you're not identifying with that self, if you're identifying with the body and the mind, the way that you try and get yourself to stop that is by reminding yourself continually that me as a body and mind am nothing but a consumer running around munching on the planet, <laughs> on the people around me, a constant sense of hunger. That's what you as a body-mind are. You as that eternal self are bliss and love, existence, intelligence, absolute. That's why you want to work and come to a place where you know yourself to be that and where that self is calling the shots and inspiring the ideas, inspiring the being. But you as a body-mind, to never, to never come to the place where you think, ah, I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> to not look in the mirror and think, I'm still looking pretty good. Not to praise the body and mind. Not to get stuck in that space. But always remember that all the good in you is what is shining through from that, from that self, which is still hidden, still a mystery. So we keep on doing that work to find it. We don't, take, we don't find contentment in being a good person. We don't think we've come far enough because we've memorized the last scripture or we've read the last book. But that all of our self-worth comes from knowing that God is within us. That to the extent we manifest that nature, we are good. To the extent that we eliminate our ego, we are good. But to the extent that we hold on to that lower identity, to that extent we're the vilest of worms <laughs> in that sense. So keep that in mind. <laughs> Live like that and you won't be offended. Live like that and you won't be haughty. Live like that and you won't be selfish. The eighth degree. Up to eight in ten minutes. All right. The eighth degree of humility is when a monk does nothing but what is sanctioned by the common rule of the monastery and the example of his elders. That's that song. That's why I took that extra minute to sing that song. Not as I want life to be. Not as I want to see. But as you want to see. So we're always trying to give over to that higher self, to that higher notion of love, to that better ideal of truth and selflessness and caring. To do nothing that isn't sanctioned by that self, that supreme beauty that is within us. So this is pretty far along in the advancement here. If we're on level eight, you're doing nothing but what is sanctioned by the scriptures. Somebody's watching your life. It's the whole reason we, we've got a book called The Gospel of Ramakrishna. Can you imagine that? This guy lived a life that was so given over to that ideal of love that somebody watching his life wrote it down and it became scripture. That's an amazing thing. That, that Takur just lived his life and it was scripture. That's what this level eight means. Living your life so that nothing that you're doing isn't a direct manifestation of pure love. So that nothing you're doing isn't a manifestation of selflessness and intelligence and infinity, fearlessness. That's what that means. That you're always remembering God. That you're never considering yourself before others. That you're not worshiping your ego that you're not querying your mind endlessly for its preferences and its desires, that you're looking to fulfill the people's lives around you, that you live to see others successful, that you live to see others prosperous, that you live to see others content. And you do it with such a natural grace and such a sweetness of heart 
that nobody notices until they pick up the book of your life and it's a scripture. That's beautiful. That's what it is to live for God. These next three, 9, 10, and 11, they're all about speech. The ninth degree of humility is when a monk withholds his tongue from speaking and keeping silence does not speak until he is asked. For the scripture shows that in a multitude of words, there is no want of sin. This, this is a good one to sit and think about. Because how many times are we convinced at the business meeting that we've got the best idea? <laughs> that that way of doing something that was just mentioned by that bimbo across the table there was obviously stupid. And I could do a much better way of, of doing it, you know. To be, the, to be the person who's always ready to give their knowledge, always ready to give their opinion, always ready to give their direction, always ready to give their instruction. It's a great exercise to not provide that until you're asked. Don't give your opinion unless you're asked for your opinion. It's a tough challenge. It's a tough challenge, and it takes a humble mind to do it well. And people will begin to recognize you in that sense. You know, I, I've told this story about Swami Vedananda. He's, he goes a very, very, very... I, I should be careful because these things are recorded, and I'm sure it'll get back to him at some point. So, Vedananda, here it is. Uh, he's one of the most... I would say he's the most humble person I've ever met. I've seen him be so abused, and I've seen such things said to him in different circumstances, and just always with an even mind and a sweet nature, he just goes on with it. I myself berated him as a brahmachari when I was a brahmachari. He was a senior monk. <laughs> I'll let that sink in for a minute. And me as a brahmachari berating him, telling him you know, that he wanted me to replace the toilets in the men's retreat house. And uh, I had my way of doing it, and he had his way of doing it, and he was telling me we were going to do it his way. And uh, I wasn't sitting real well with that. And it, it didn't matter to him. He was all right. I had to do it his way. <laughs> all right, I have to come clean. <laughs> I actually refused to do it because he wouldn't let me do it his way, or my way. And... Uh, so I made uh, an 80-year-old Swami change the toilets. And the... <laughs> okay, so now that that's out there, we know what not to do with this idea here. So all of those things that you know you're good at, that you think you're great at, all of those ideas that you think are superior, the better ways of doing things, the plans that are perfect, the, the absolute proper way of approaching something, fine. Can you sit there and not say it until somebody thinks the same about you? You know, Swami Vedananda would go to these interfaith meetings. And, you know, I noticed a lot of times at interfaith meetings, there's a lot of cross-talking. Somebody will be trying to make a point and everybody else will be talking at the same time. I saw the importance of this point here from Vedananda because at those interfaith meetings, he never says anything unless he's asked. And the difference about that is any time Vedananda spoke, the entire table was quiet. Nobody cross-talked when Vedananda spoke. Because Vedananda never pushed himself into the middle of something. He always sat there, and when he was asked, he just in a very mild manner gave the idea or gave his perspective. And everybody listened because he had the kind of life that people knew he probably did know what he was talking about. He wasn't the oaf that was always pushing in to run the meeting. You know, he wasn't the goon that walked in the room to sit down and enlighten everybody about how to get things done and how to do it in the right way in the most efficient way. Yeah. It's like the best way to do this is when, when, when somebody's helping you out in the kitchen and you ask them to cut a tomato for you, and they cut that tomato differently than you would. Are you able to just be like, okay, cool, we'll use it that way? Or do you have to go over there and teach them how to do a tomato properly? You know, 
these little things. I know I spent the whole, well, I spent a good three weeks in the kitchen down there with all these kids. And uh, they have some really ingenious ideas sometimes about how things should be done. And they can be done that way. They really can. Yeah, there might be a better way in my mind, but is that necessary? Can't I make them or encourage them to feel good about the way that they came up with? Let them learn to cut a tomato the same way I did by cutting them wrong for a long time. (laughs) So think about yourself in that way. How do you present yourself in this world? Are you modest? Are you quiet? Are you subtle? Or are you loud and boisterous, pushing for your own way to go? The the 10th degree of humility is when a monk is not easily moved or quick for laughter. For it is written, the fool exalts his own voice in laughter. Now, I struggled with this one because, you know, I read through the gospel and there's so much laughter. And I like the idea of, you know, when Vivekananda says the religion is joy, real religion is joyful. So what's he talking about here? What he's talking about here is when your laughter becomes attached to your ego, you you become the class clown. You know, you become the one who's flippant. Like you'll be having a serious conversation and you'll be the one cracking jokes so that the atmosphere never quite develops, you know. The teacher is teaching, you know, something to you from the scripture. And you're not taking it seriously. You're thinking of funny alternatives or funny ways of looking at it or you hear funny things. And so you're always trying to make the joke or always trying to be the witty one or always trying to be. I remember having these dinner parties. I have to be careful here now having these dinner parties and having all these people sitting around the table. And I don't know how many times those dinner parties simply turned into a bunch of people sitting around the table saying the meanest things in the world in an effort to be the most witty. The person who could, who could say, you know, the, the most cutting remark or to, to completely, you know, disarm somebody else at the table. Like some of the dinner parties I went to were like that where everybody was just trying to one-up everybody else with how witty or how smart or how clever they were. And it was, it was hilarious, but, <laughs> but it was quite tiring. And I do remember the feeling after it was all over and going home and laying there and contemplating the evening and thinking, God, that was the biggest waste of time I've ever been through. Like nothing was accomplished. No relationships were built. You know, no friendships were cemented. There was nothing there. It was just a bunch of idle talk, everybody trying to be the social king of the night, you know, or queen of the night, trying to be the one who said the memorable, the one memorable thing. That's what he's talking about here, you know, not being like that, that you're not, you're not quick to, to, to cut the jokes and to lower the, the, the vibe of what's happening, but that you're really attentive and you're there to build up. You're there to help. You're there to enlighten. You're there to support Uh, the people around you. Swamiji says, those who are pure always in body, mind, and speech, who have strong devotion, who discriminate between the real and the unreal, who persevere in meditation and contemplation, upon them alone the grace of God descends. This tapasya is threefold. It is the tapasya of the body, of speech, and of mind. The first service The first is service of others, the second is truthfulness, and the third is control and concentration. So he's saying the tapasya of body is is the service of others. The tapasya of speech is truthfulness, that honestness, that integrity that we talked about to beginning with, the thing that Takwar says is one of the most important things. And the tapasya of mind is control and concentration, that you're driving the mind, it's not driving you. All right. Purity in thought and speech and act is absolutely necessary for anyone to be religious. As the thirst after knowledge, it is an old law that we all get whatever we want. None of us can get anything other than what we fix our hearts upon. To pant for religion truly is a very difficult thing, not at all so easy as we generally imagine. Hearing religious talk or reading religious books is no proof yet of a real want or felt in the heart. There must be a continuous struggle, a constant fight, an unremitting grappling with our lower nature till the higher want is actually felt and the victory is achieved. It is not a question of one or two days, of years or of lives. 
The struggle may be to go on for hundreds of lifetimes. The success sometimes may come immediately, but we must be ready to wait patiently, even for what may look like an infinite length of time. The student who sets out with such a spirit of perseverance will surely find success, and realization will be his. So that's from Vivekananda there. You know, so that it's a continuous struggle. That we take all of these ideas of humility, all these ideas of spiritual life, and it's a constant struggle. It's the whole reason that the Gita is happening on the battlefield. What does our life look like? <laughs> Are we fighting these things in ourselves? At the end of the day, did you put up a good fight or did you pretty much just walk around with a white flag? Yeah, I'll eat that. Yeah, I'll say that. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll go there. Yeah, I'll hang with that. Was there any consciousness of the divine inside? Was there any battle against the lower nature, trying to find that divinity within you, trying to let that manifest, to do away with the selfishness of mind and body? That's the continuous struggle. The last humility is just to know who you are, to know that all your faults are your own. <laughs> To know at the end of the day that you haven't realized God because you didn't want to. To know that you haven't gone into ecstasy because you loved other things more. That the condition of your spiritual life is what it is because you only cared that much. And the point is not to feel guilty about that. The point is to be aware of that so that you're not bold and brash about a, hypocr a hypocritic stance in your life. You know, that, that, that you don't become that church lady, you know, who, who's, who's, who really has a very high opinion of her own spirituality, but by everybody else is known as just being a mean person. <laughs> everybody else thinks she's just judgmental. She's the first to talk about everything bad that everybody else is doing. And yet, holds this high opinion of themselves. That's what this is talking about here. It's not walking around feeling guilty about the state of things. That doesn't benefit you or anybody. But the state of honesty will open your heart to grace and open your appreciation of the grace that is available to you so that you don't have to sit there and spend the first 15 minutes of your meditation every day being sorry that you did such a poor job yesterday. You can sit there and for the first time, sit there and know, Takor, what you must have to deal with with me here. Thanks for inviting me. And sit there and think about Takor, about love, about God, about your highest ideals. So humility is not, is not beating yourself up. It's accepting who you are and where you're at and letting grace cover the rest of it. Letting your need for God be ever more apparent to you. That you're not covering it up with pretensions so that everybody else in the room thinks you're a saint so that everybody will look at you and think oh you're the grandmother that that always you know is leading her family in the best highest possible way no you're a human being whose struggle is apparent but whose tenacity is admirable whose humility is beautiful and attractive you're the person who thinks you're the least spiritual one in the room but everybody else is coming to you for spiritual advice and wanting to know how to deal with the things that are wrong in their lives because they know you won't judge them, because they know you won't speak ill of them, because they know you won't mention it to somebody else behind their back, because they know you to be a lover of God and that you see God in them and you're sweet to them. The idea of humility is just to be what you are and to let God manifest in his own good way and own good time through you so that you are that, the highest ideal of what you've ever wanted to be. So that when you lay down and finally pass away and we have our little memorial here in this room for you, <laughs> Somebody won't have to sit there and rack their mind to come up with something nice to say. 
<laughs> they won't have to go all the way back to your grammar school days to come up with a friendly story about you. You know, be, be the person you want to be at your memorial. <laughs> be the person who loves. Be the person who cares. Be the person who serves. Be the person who's thinking about everybody else all the time, who wakes up in the morning with that first thought in their mind, what am I going to do for others today? What am I going to do to be loving, to be what I've always dreamed of being? That person who loves for its own sake, because love is beautiful in itself. And I don't need or want anything beyond that, but to create beauty, to create love, to engender peace. Those are the 12 steps of humility according to our brother, Benedict. On page 48, Hafiz has a beautiful thing here in reference to that tenacity and so that not giving up, not being beaten. I saw you dancing last night on the roof of your house all alone. I felt your heart longing for the friend. I saw you whirling beneath the soft, bright rose that hung from an invisible stem in the sky, and so I began to change into my best clothes in hopes of joining you, even though I lived a thousand miles away. And if you would have spun like an immaculate sphere just two more times, and bowed again so sweetly to the east, you would have found that God and I were standing so near and lifting you into our arms. I saw you dancing last night near the roof of this world. Hafiz feels your soul in mine, calling for our beloved. So know when you sit down to meditate today, if you meditate just that extra two minutes, <laughs> mother may have been waiting there just about to touch you and you quit. She was just about to give you a little bit of light, and you quit. You got frustrated. You got lazy or whatever. Don't. Let's go forward. Let's think about these things for a few minutes and offer ourselves to the very reason for humility. Humility.